Instead of closing with a series of greetings and benedictions, James issues three commands directed towards three critical issues. Taking frivolous and false vows, chapter 5, verse 12. Praying for one another's needs, chapter 5, verse 13 to 18. And restoring sinning believers, chapter 5, 19 to 20. It is not surprising that James would close with a series of commands, since the theme of his entire epistle has been commands for scattered and struggling saints. Douglas Moo points out that there are more imperative verbs per word in this epistle than any other New Testament book. In his second to last command, James admonished us to pray for one another in times of suffering, in times of sickness, and in times of sin. While praying for those suffering and sick results in granting them grace to persevere and strength to endure, praying for sinning believers results in something altogether different. Praying for sinning believers results in freeing them from their sin. However, it's not enough to merely pray for them. James' final command is that believers must restore the wandering believer. In other words, we must not only pray, but we must also pursue them who have wandered from the truth of God's word and or stumbled into sin. Regarding restoring the wanderer, James addresses the responsibility in verse 19 and the results of restoration in verse 20. Let's turn over to James chapter 5 and verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. In verse 19, James addresses his readers one last time as my brethren. He's about to show them the responsibility of restoring the wandering. Now, 14 times in his pastoral address, James has used the term brethren, Adelphos, to underscore that though they may be scattered, they're all part of the same household, the household of faith. As well, the term communicates his care and concern for the sheep under his care. Additionally, by referring to his readers as brethren, James places himself on equal footing with them. Together, they need to pray for one another and pursue any who strays from the truth. Again, we're dealing with the responsibility of restoring the wanderer. Again, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, what is the truth? Now, the use of the article, the, te, before truth, aletheia, denotes an entire body of truth. That body of truth is what James referred to as the word of truth in James 1.18. Generally, the word of truth refers to the scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 43. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 10. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. More specifically, the word of truth refers to the gospel. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Colossians 1 and verse 5 because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. 
Again, James says, if any among you strays from the truth. Since James is writing to the brethren, the phrase among you denotes believers straying from the truth. That James is addressing the issue of sinning or straying believers should not be surprising. In James 4.8, James said, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Later in chapter 5, he addressed wealthy Christian business people who were guilty of the sins of presumption, boasting, and omission. And he addressed wealthy Christian landowners who were guilty of the sins of injustice, greed, and oppression. Now the verb strays, planeo, means to wander or go astray. It's used in Matthew 18 to describe sheep who wander. Matthew 18, 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Has gone astray, planeo. Strain, planeo. Now the passive voice of strays in James 5.19 underscores the potentiality of believers being led astray or deceived. The potential of deception was heavy upon James' heart as he previously warned in James 1.16, Do not be deceived, planeo, my beloved brethren. That verb deceived in James 1.16 translates the Greek verb planeo, the same verb translated as strays in James 5.19. See, my friends, we have exceptional potential to be deceived and led astray from the truth largely when scattered or struggling. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul warned, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from, me, the living God. We need to be aware of developing an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart causes you to fall away from the living God. And to fall away, me, means to abandon or distance yourself from a position. See, friends, when you tolerate sin or distrust God, you are going to distance yourself from God and rebel against Him. And because of the extreme potential to be deceived and wander, Paul admonished believers, he admonishes us, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, when we stir up one another to love and good deeds, we are less prone to be deceived and wander. According to Paul, the most significant opportunity to stimulate one another to love and good deeds is when the church is gathered. Our own assembling together. Now I want you to listen very carefully here. A disregard for assembling together is the first indication that we are not stirring up one another to love and to do good deeds. That term forsaking, eg lepo in Hebrews 10.25, means to abandon or desert. We must not abandon the assembling together. 
Now, the assembling is the time when the church gathers for corporate worship. Assembling together, episunagoge, or it comes from the word synagogue, does not refer to a single or occasional act of assembling, but to regular and customary assembling or gathering together. So, a hit and miss type of attendance is not assembling together. What Paul has in mind here is regular, customary assembling for corporate worship. Gathering on an occasion or occasionally for worship does not appease the command to assemble. We are to assemble for worship regularly. In other words, it should be your custom or habitual practice. Sadly, Paul indicated that forsaking of the assembling together was the habit of some. The term habit, ethus, indicates that this had become their standard practice. Some of the very ones to whom he wrote were regularly disaffiliating themselves from the corporate gathering of the church. And regrettably, the church today suffers from the same problem. Maybe I'm talking to some of you. There is a growing lone wolf mindset amongst modern Christians. Donald Guthrie states that the New Testament lends no support to the idea of lone Christians. Close and regular fellowship with other believers is not just a nice idea. It is an absolute necessity for the encouragement of Christian values. Now let's be clear. Paul's indictment is not against those who cannot assemble because they're sick, incapacitated, frail, or bedridden. Okay, That's not who he's writing to here. He's not writing to the sick, incapacitated, frail, or bedridden. He is not making an indictment against those whose job requires them to work, such as a doctor, a nurse, the police, the military, to name a few. As well, this is not an indictment against those who may go away on a vacation. And furthermore, this indictment does not apply to occasions when the government bans all public gatherings for public health. That said... This indictment does apply to every believer who has no legitimate reason in God's sight to assemble together with God's people. Well, I'm too tired. Guess what? Doesn't cut it with God. Well, I had things to do last night. Doesn't cut it with God. Well, I've got something to do today. Doesn't cut it with God. There's a very narrow window of legitimate reasons. And the vast majority of believers who are not assembling together do not fit that category. You need to examine yourself. Friends, listen very carefully. If you are not assembling together on a regular basis, all the while having the means to do so, You are not only failing to stir up one another in love and good deeds, but you have exposed yourself to wandering from the truth. Consequently, 
Paul exhorted believers not only to assemble, but to be encouraging one another. Encouraging, parakaleo, means to come alongside, to comfort or encourage. Encouraging one another involves three things. It is, a respons- it is the responsibility of every believer to comfort or encourage one another, not just the elders. It's all of you, every one of you have a responsibility to encourage and comfort one another. It also requires spending time with one another. Requires spending time with one another. Now, we certainly can't spend time with everybody, but we can spend time with various ones that God lays on our heart. But you've got to spend time with them to encourage them. And it requires determination, focus, and effort. James' concern for wandering believers here in James 5.19 is stated in a third-class conditional phrase. If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. Now he uses a third class conditional clause, if, to present a future potential. The future potential, however, is not that someone will stray from the truth. There is no doubt that believers will stray. The future potential of which James writes is that another believer will turn them back. That verb, turns back, epistrepho means to redirect someone's attention or change one's belief. Contextually, it means to return someone to the truth, to the word of truth, to the scriptures. Just as we pray for one another to be victorious over sin, so we must pursue those believers who are wandering from the truth of God's word. Do you do that? In an age when there is much ado about evangelistic ministries, apologetic ministries, men's ministries, women's ministries, and children's ministries, to name a few. There has been a lack of attention upon the ministry of restoration. Sadly, we are quick to judge and wash our hands from fellow believers who wander from the truth and sin. But James expresses a clear expectation that we are to pursue those who wander. No doubt... James has in mind the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, 12 to 14. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety and nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, I've got news for everyone. The parable of the lost sheep is not about pursuing the lost. It's not about evangelism. Not that evangelism isn't important. It is. But this parable is about pursuing believers who have wandered from the sheepfold. Now, notice here. They are sheep. In New Testament parabolic literature... Sheep always refer to believers, not unbelievers. Furthermore, in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus applies the parable of the lost sheep to the ministry of restoring sinning believers. If your brother sins, how then do we undertake the ministry of restoration? Restoration begins with repentance. Matthew 18, 15 to 17 
lays out a plan for confronting sinning or wandering believers. Now, as an aside, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, has wrongly been used by the church to close rank and cover up crimes such as child abuse or sexual abuse. In situations where lives are endangered, the proper authorities must be notified. Only, only a charlatan and a scoundrel, a scallywag, would use Matthew 18, 15 to 17 to cover up crimes against humanity. That said, the goal of confrontation is to bring the sinning believer to repentance, not judgment. The scripture does not mandate how long this process should take. Once, once repentance occurs, however, restoration begins. Now notice here that the confrontation begins by privately approaching the sinning believer. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. You know, listen, my friends, if you know that a fellow believer is sinning or wandering, you have a responsibility to confront them. And this confrontation is to me in private. The fewer people involved makes the restoration process less traumatizing for all involved. Also, confrontation should be done in a spirit of gentleness and humility. The goal is to call them to repentance. If the sinning person repents, he or she is forgiven and restoration can begin. Now, if the personal confrontation is unsuccessful, then take two or three believers as witnesses and go back to the sinning or wandering believer. Verse 16 of Matthew 18. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Now, based upon the law in Deuteronomy 19.15, two or three witnesses were required to confirm or validate the offense. As such, these witnesses are there to confirm three things. One, they confirm that sin has or is occurring. Two, they confirm that the sinning believer has appropriately been aware, made aware of his sin. And three, they confirm that the sinning believer has either repented and been restored or refused to repent. These witnesses should be the elders of the church. In the synagogue administration upon which church eldership is based, two or three elders served as a tribunal to oversee issues dealing with sinning believers. The, the elders are there to confirm the issue and urge the guilty party to repent. Now, if the private confrontation with others is unsuccessful, then the matter is to be brought to the attention of the church. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, informing the church should not be part of the regular worship service. It should be a specially called meeting of the members. The church should be encouraged to pursue and plead with the individual to repent. At this point, the goal is still to bring the sinning believer to repentance and reconciliation. If the sinning believer refuses to listen to the pleading of the church, then and only then should that believer be removed from fellowship within the church. It, verse, eight, verse 17 of Matthew 18. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. 
Now, that means, let him be to you as a Gentile, means let him be treated as a pagan or unregenerate person. And let him be to you as a tax collector, uh, in the Jewish culture, was someone who was viewed as an outcast. In other words, the sinning believer is to be treated as a pagan and an outcast. Thus, ostracizing does not cut off all contact with the sinning believer. It's just they need to be treated as an outcast. They need to be treated as an unbeliever. But whenever there is contact, as believers, we should be admonishing them regarding their sin and lack of repentance. Paul also addressed the same issue with the Galatian believers. In Galatians 6, he outlines a three-step plan to facilitate restoration. Pick them up, hold them up, build them up. The first step of restoration is to pick them up. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in any spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now the term there, trespass, paraptoma, means to stumble or fall. The term caught, pralambano, refers to being caught off guard. Together it indicates that sin has crept in and caused a believer to stumble and fall into sin. Note that the restoration of this individual is to be handled by you who are spiritual. That is the spiritually mature. The term restore, cotertizo, means to set a bone or mend a net. Restore conveys the sense of returning something to its former condition. And this ministry of restoration is to be done in a spirit of gentleness. In other words, if you are working to restore a fallen brother or sister, you're to do it with humility. Friend, remember, that could be you in the same condition or position. The second step is to hold them up. So we pick them up, now we hold them up as they struggle to overcome their sin. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now the word burden there, baros, refers to an area of spiritual weakness where temptation strikes. We're to bear their burden. See, the process of restoration is not always easy because the area of spiritual weakness is often still there. If the individual is left to themselves to overcome the temptation, they're going to fall again and again and again. See, freedom from sin is not freedom from temptation. If you're a spiritually mature individual and you're helping someone struggling with sin, you must help them deal with the temptations that are apt to strike. And such help can be accomplished through accountability. See, my friends, accountability is not just quoting a verse to someone. That does not work. It means taking a call from them when they're struggling. It means praying with them. It means helping to develop a plan to overcome the temptation. It means helping them execute that plan. And when you help someone overcome a temptation or spiritual weakness, you are fulfilling the law of Christ, which is what? To love one another. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. At this stage, Paul provides several warnings that should be heeded when helping to restore a weaker brother. First of all, 
Beware of false comparisons. Look at verse 3 of Galatians 6. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. See, you're, you're trying to minister to this person. And if you start to compare yourself to, some, to him or to somebody else, you're lying to yourself because you're comparing yourself to the wrong standard. Beware of falling into spiritual pride. Verse 4. Each one must examine his own work and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. Listen, any victory over sin that one has in their own life is owed to the grace of God and not you. Don't pat yourself on the back. And number three, beware of forsaking your ministry. Verse 5 of Galatians 6. Each one will bear his own load. Now the term burden in verse 2 referred to something heavy. The term load in verse 5 refers to something light or easy. In the context, this light load refers to our routine obligations of service to God. As we engage in the restoring ministry, we cannot neglect our other ministries or obligations. So that's three warnings. Don't compare yourself to others. Don't fall into spiritual pride. Don't forsake your ministry. Let's move on to the third step of restoration. The third step is to build them up. So we pick them up, we hold them up, we build them up so they can be restored to fellowship. Look at verse 6 of Galatians 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. That is, the spiritually mature one teaches the word of God to build up the repentant sinner back to their former standing. In doing so, the now restored believer can share koinonio or fellowship in the blessings of God with other spiritually mature believers. Friends, we have a responsibility of restoring the wandering believer. So verse 19, the responsibility of restoring the wandering. Now let's look at verse 20, the results of restoring the wandering. The results of restoring the wandering. Verse 20, James chapter 5. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now notice the phrase, let him go, gnosko, let him know. It means to know something by experience. By using the imperative form of this verb, James admonishes us to engage in the ministry of restoration by considering its results. And the results of restoring the wandering believer are twofold. One, it will save his soul from death, and two, it will cover a multitude of sins. Notice here that restoration means to turn a sinner from the error of his way. Again, the sinner refers to a believer. The word turn, epistrepho, means to redirect their attention or change one's belief. In verse 19, believers were to turn, epistrepho, sinning or wandering believers, back to the word of truth. Here in verse 20, James uses the verb to explain that sinning believers need to be directed away from the error of his way. The term error, plane, is the noun form of the verb strays, planeo, in verse 19. The term way, hodas, refers to a person's conduct or way of life. And when James enjoins the term error and way to describe someone, he is describing their conduct as being perverse or wicked. 2 Peter 1.18. Talking about false teachers, it says, They speak out arrogant words of vanity, enticed by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Jude verse 11 Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for the pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. 
into the conduct, wicked conduct or perverse conduct of Balaam. See, my friends, straying from the sound teaching of the word of truth is consequences. Deviation from biblical doctrine always results in moral failure. That's why it's so important to assemble together. It is of the utmost importance to pursue the wanderer before he or she goes down a path of immorality, perverseness, and wickedness. How many believers have wallowed in doctrinal and moral failure because another believer didn't seek to restore them. In light of this potential moral failure, James reveals that there will be magnificent results when believers engage in the ministry of of restoration. First, they will save a soul from death. Now the term soul, suke, generally refers to the immaterial part of animals and people, which includes the psychological aspects of intellect, emotion, and will. However, the soul, suke, is also used metonymically to describe life itself. It's used as a metaphor, Matthew 6, 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, suke, as to what you will eat or what you will drink. Acts 15, 26, men have risked their lives, suke, for the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 16.4, who for my life, suke, risked their own necks. Now because this is the only usage of soul in James, it's unclear if he's talking about the immaterial part of a person or if he's talking about life itself. The term death, thanatos, refers to separation from something. Theologically, there are several types of death in the Scripture. There is physical death, which involves separating one's material body from their immaterial body. Spiritual death describes the separation between God and humanity because of sin. The second death is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Now the term death is used one other time in James' epistle. James 1.15, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, thanatos. When James speaks of death as the result of sin, he refers to physical death. Not spiritual or second death. James' point is that while everyone will eventually die, some may die due to sin before their appointed time. Now to conclusively understand what James means by save his soul from death, the term save, sozo, must also be considered. James uses the term sozo three other times in his epistle, not to refer to soteriological redemption, but in the sense of freeing or rescuing someone from harm. For example, in James 1.21, the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, describes how the word of truth rescues believers daily from filthiness and wickedness. Now, because James does not use the verb sozo in a soteriological sense, the term death is not referring to spiritual death or second death. Since this death is physical then, Soul is describing one's life. Hence, when James states that restoration will save his soul from death, he means that the restorer prevents the wanderer from an untimely death from sin. See, my friends, if you're wandering into habitual sin, you may likely die before your appointed time. 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 30. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, 
sick, and a number sleep, i.e. are dead. And the untimely death of a believer because of sin will ultimately result in a loss of their heavenly rewards and blessings. Now, not only does the ministry of restoration rescue a sinning believer from an untimely death, but it will also cover a multitude of sins. The verb cover, colupto, means to remove from sight. It does not mean to hide something. God removes sin from his sight. He doesn't hide it. The idea of covering or removing sin is rooted in the Old Testament concept of atonement. The Hebrew word for atonement, kofur or kafar, means to cover or to remove by, from sight by payment of a ransom. When humanity sinned in the garden, God slaughtered a lamb. The skin of that lamb provided a physical covering to remove from sight humanity's nakedness. The blood of the lamb provided a spiritual covering to remove humanity's sin from God's sight. Moving forward, God established a day of atonement in which a lamb would be slaughtered to cover or atone the sins of the people. In every Old Testament example of atonement, God set the terms for covering sin. The death of a substitutionary animal and the shedding of blood. This day of atonement ultimately pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. See, God sent Jesus to be our substitutionary atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin, i.e. the sin offering, on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus therefore died as a substitute in our place. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. By shedding his blood, Jesus provided the covering for sin. His blood cleanses us from sin. See, through Adam all have sinned and are dead, but through Jesus all believers, all who repent and believe, are made righteous and have eternal life. Romans five seventeen to 19 For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous." Second Corinthians or First Corinthians fifteen twenty two. In Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now that phrase cover a multitude of sins in James five twenty alludes to Psalm thirty two one. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As well in Psalm eighty five verse two it says, "You forgave the iniquity of your people; you covered all their sins." Selah. In both Psalm passages, the verbs forgiven or forgave are in parallel position to the verb covered. This parallelism underscores the idea behind cover is one of forgiveness. Hence, when James says they will cover a multitude of sins, he means that all sins of the wandering believer will be forgiven. And that their sins are forgiven means they've repented of their sin. And having repented, praise God, they can be fully restored to fellowship and ministry. See, my friends, we need to understand 
that these wanderers or sinning believers are not backslidden. We need to stop calling them backslidden. The term backslidden has been thrown around a lot over the last 50 years to describe a habitually sinning believer. But we need to understand here that the scripture uses the term backslider to depict an apostate. As in Proverbs 14, it talks about the apostate and it says he's a backslider in heart. Proverbs 14, 14. As well, Jeremiah 49, 4 and 5 talks about the backsliding daughter who trusts in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? And God replies, I'm going to bring terror upon you. See, an apostate, a backslider, is one who's abandoned their faith. There's a huge, a significant difference between struggling in sin and abandoning one's faith. If you're struggling in sin, you can be restored. But if you've abandoned your faith, you can never again repent and be restored. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to 6. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away, i.e., abandoned their faith, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Friends, we need to be pursuing a ministry of restoration. The ministry of restoration is a great blessing that will not only benefit the wanderer, but you as the restorer as well. Ezekiel 3.21 However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live because he took your warning, and you have delivered yourself. 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Per persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The restored benefit by having their sins forgiven and their punishment removed. And friends, if you're the restorer, you'll benefit because it will keep you from sin as well. Let's pray. Father God, we have thanked you for this study in the book of James these commands to the scattered and struggling saints. And Lord, as we have now closed this book with a final word on this ministry of restoration, I pray that you'd give us a heart for restoration. Father, church life has seemed to, be, to, to have two extremes. On one hand, we're either ignoring sin, or on the other hand, we're, we're, we're coming down as judge, jury, and executioner of sin. And Father, we need to strike that biblical balance in the middle of, of, of those people that, yes, call out sin for what it is. But Father, as well, seek to have a ministry of restoration. Seek to pursue those who are wandering, those who are sinning, and rescuing them, Father. Lest their life be snuffed out. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us a heart to pursue those wandering sheep. And in so doing, follow your example. Again, Father, we thank you for this study. We thank you for these commands. And Lord, as we take time to review and examine ourselves, if we're lacking in any area, Father, forgive us and restore us to fellowship. Restore us to ministry. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.